hallowing the name of God is more for me than it is for God. Because prior to hallowing his name, I've been in the world. That's what's previous to every prayer I pray is I've been (laughs) in the world. And if I do not begin my prayers by becoming more in touch with the reality of who he is, then my prayers are born from reaction to the circumstances around me yep. rather than the reality of who God is. You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is season two prayer. Hey everyone, welcome to season two of the Rule of Life podcast. I'm John Mark Comer with Practicing the Way. We are here in Portland, Oregon. It is most definitely not summer right now. It is cold and rainy and gloomy and poetic outside and we're wearing wool and drinking good coffee but we are tucked into a little studio at the bible project actually thank you to our friends at the bible project for the kindness here and hospitality and i am not alone i'm here with three very good friends first off let me introduce you to reward sabanda reward is on the teaching team at upper room in dallas texas but you are originally that's not a Southern accent, yeah. from a different Zimbabwe. Southern, from Zimbabwe, yeah. yes, Southern Africa. You're also a senior advisor for church and community relations at World Vision. Yeah. And, fun fact, you and your wife Pam are expecting baby Sabanda, that right? we are, man. We're so excited. It's, when are you due? <laughs> uh, Mid-February, right? So we're soaking in all the sleep we can get right now, but mid-February yes. is when it happens. Just from the time of listening, just a few weeks away from... <laughs> Mini reward, boy, girl? It's going to be a boy. Yeah. So excited. There you go. So I'm open to all those cool names that you guys have, these biblical names, these Portland names, John whatever it is. and Mark are both biblical. <laughs> Tyler is not. So anyway. I love it. Well, we're really happy you're here. Um, Thank you. Speaking of expecting a child, I'm also here with Gemma Ryan, who's, who is not expecting a child. Yeah, let's, let's clarify that. But has four children, and you just recently had twins who are, what, eight months old? They're is that right? Al- almost nine months, yeah. Okay, so I don't know if we should be praying for you or for your husband right now, who's home in New York. Yeah, this is like vacation for you to fly across the country and record a podcast. So Gemma is uh, the associate pastor at Oaks Church in Brooklyn, in addition to being mom and all of those things. You are originally from Ireland, which is lovely to hear your voice. You also serve as a spiritual director and are working on your master's in Christian spiritual formation and leadership at Friends University. We're so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. I literally have no idea how you do it. Twins, two other children, pastor at a church, flying across the country for the podcast, getting your master's degree. Thanks for making the rest of us feel insecure. Oh, boy. And I know you through this other gentleman at the table, Tyler Staten. You two work together in Brooklyn. Tyler Staten is the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church and my successor there and a dear friend. He's also the national director of 24-7 Prayer USA as well as the author of not one, but just as of a few weeks ago, two books, most recently Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, 
Great title. Beautiful book on prayer. And uh, Tyler, you are such a dear friend to myself and my family, and it's just great to be in the same room with you. Yeah, man. You too. I'm excited for the conversation. So welcome to all of you listening, wherever you are, driving in your car, folding laundry on your morning run. We're so happy that you would give us your ear. We are here to talk about prayer. Tyler, you're writing books about prayer, you're teaching on prayer, you're the director of a national prayer initiative, and, you know, all four of us are pastors, and we get the privilege of a kind of behind-the-scenes glimpse into people's inner life with God, and it's one of, I think, the most holy and sacred things that we get to participate in in pastoral work, but... So all of us have some vantage point, but in particular from your vantage point, what do you think is most people's experience of prayer? Yeah, I think to define that, we have to start with the scriptures and what Jesus says about prayer. Because in my opinion, prayer is the subject of Jesus' most audacious promises, this side of grace. Let me just give you a quick sampling as a reminder of what Jesus has to say about prayer. In Luke's gospel, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In Mark, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Mm. In John, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And then just a chapter later, Jesus kind of re-ups on the same thing saying, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We read the same thing in Matthew's gospel. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And then famously from the Sermon on the Mount, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So words like these, they're so direct and empowering that they should make us want to do nothing except pray. But in my pastoral experience, they don't. And just in my own life experience as a follower of Jesus, they don't. Because the experience of prayer so quickly exposes the wide gap between Jesus' very straightforward and audacious promises about prayer and my actual experience in prayer when I practice it. Mm -hmm. And what we seem to be experiencing in prayer when we practice is some version of it doesn't seem to be working as Jesus said it would, which leads to disappointment and disillusionment. Or the truth is I don't really like to pray, even though I know it's good for me, making prayer the, essentially the equivalent to doing a shot of wheatgrass, which is like <laughs> I got to get these nutrients <laughs> in me somehow, so here it goes. But hold the nose as it's going down. Exactly, or <laughs> yeah. Or just maybe worst of all, shame. That, oh, I must be doing it wrong because I'm not getting the return on my investment Jesus seems to be advertising. So I am the problem. And then prayer, which should be the ultimate experience of divine intimacy and power, it tends in experience to become a place instead of disillusionment or duty or shame. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I've never sat across from anyone who, when I've asked them about their prayer life, is like, you know what, I'm just so good at prayer. I'm like daily crushing this thing. Most of us, including myself, have often felt like we're missing the mark. And 
The truth is, I think that the Bible is a lot more honest about the challenges of prayer than we often are in the church. You know, the Psalms are filled with lament, words like, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord? The, the prophets do a lot of complaining. It seems like all of the great heroes of faith had no problem bringing their entire selves into conversation with God. Um, all of them, it seems, at some point doubted if God was hearing them or seeing them or acting on their behalf. But we rarely see ourselves in the same way that we see those people. And, and I think one of the reasons why prayer can be so difficult is that we're also not really being honest about how we see God and how we believe that God sees us. We often hold a false narrative about God and how God feels about us, this kind of blessing, punishing God. I mean, if we feel like we have to perform for God, I don't know that we'll ever truly enter into prayer in a deeply intimate way in the way that God desires for us. So I think in general, we have a lot of misconceptions about what prayer is and also what prepa- what prayer is supposed to feel like. Right. Yeah, Tyler, in your last book, there's a line I keep thinking about. You You define prayer as a search for help outside the self. And I feel like Prayer brings us to those really tender places of unanswered prayer, of unmet expectation, of the stuff in our own heart that we don't want to pray. We don't even know what to do with it. It's just there in us. And so I don't know. I mean, reward for you, you know, interesting. You're kind Mm -hmm. of a a child of two worlds living in America, but originally from Zim. Notice I've been to Zimbabwe before, so <laughs> no I know that it's called Zim. Hey, there by, we go. I saw that. I was by like, the peeps, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, is this a, I think of this as a common human experience. Yeah, like the, yeah. you read about Jesus' prayer life and then your own prayer life, and there seems to be this chasmic gap. Yeah. Is that a uniquely American or Western phenomenon? I mean, what's mm-hmm. it like in your host culture? No, thanks for that question, Jen. If you think about it, I think you've just done a phenomenal job at like, really speaking to the existential, right, itch, every human being struggles in communication with a creator, right, so much greater than themselves. So I think for the most part, it is an existential human thing that we struggle. It transcends culture. And what I love the most, right, uh, is the fact that when you go into the Bible, you notice that Jesus is constantly incentivizing us to pray, right? Man is tripartite, three-part spirit, soul, and body, but he even goes to the most base things like open reward. If you pray, you will get this specifically. And I feel like that really talks to a lot of older cultures that maybe, or uh, majority world context where people don't have a lot. Mm-hmm. They're like, wait, before we develop the, the spiritual virtues and everything else, there's the simple promise that I can lament before this God. I can go to him and ask him for the practical things in and of life. Yeah, you're talking about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, absolutely. Like people <laughs> literally, like the yeah. Lord's, like give us this day our daily bread is not a metaphor no, for anything. No. And if you think about it too, right, when, when you've noticed like a lot, th- that's the reason we were having this conversation earlier and Gemma said this, that the prosperity gospel has found such a foothold because Every other religion within a lot of African contexts is a religion of answers, right? So can you imagine then you come up with this uh, ethereal kind of metaphysical, hey, you will be one with a higher power. No, he had to begin at that existential Marslow place of <laughs> you, get, you, you get the things that you pray for. So I think, I think you've kind of nailed it. It's a human 
it's a human it's thing a human experience not just a, a western or an american or, oh. or irish or whatever <laughs> far from it but mm, yeah conundrum no definitely but what i love the most about this is a uh, man this podcast essentially is a companion piece right to practices and that a four-week journey essentially yes. that we've kind of gone through and everything so uh, J.M., would you love to just kind of maybe uh, give us a summary of the first week? So for those of you listening along, just like Reward said, this podcast is a companion to the prayer practice from Practicing the Way, which is a four-week experience designed to be done in community. And so in that practice, there are these four kind of sessions, and there's a short teaching in each one. And uh, we broke it down into these four sessions, which was really hard to take prayer and break it down into four, like, 20-minute sessions. Because, I mean, prayer is really kind of just one umbrella term. I mean, Tyler pushed back on this, but kind of for all of life with God. You know, I mean, no, there is like a narrow definition of prayer, like at a biblical theological level of, you know, calling on God to fulfill his promises. But, you know, I think of it as just this medium through which we commune with and mm -hmm. communicate with the maker of all things. I have no pushback on no that push back. whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. I passed the national director of 24-7 <laughs> prayer test. I made it. Huge. So we broke it down into four sessions. It was really hard to do, but we basically used this paradigm, and Tyler and I were in conversation around this, of four stages of prayer or dimensions of prayer. One, talking to God. Two, talking with God. Three, listening to God. And four, being with God. And they are not stages in that they are not linear per se, unless if maybe you're a brand new follower of Jesus, you may experience them in a little bit of a linear fashion, but certainly not linear or stage-based in the sense of you mature out of one and into another. We don't believe that. I don't think you ever mature out of asking because you never become independent of mm -hmm. need for God. Mm -hmm. They're more like stages that we visit and then revisit over and over again on a tightening spiral, and the farther and the deeper you go on your spiritual journey, the more it's all just kind of life with God, you know? So session one is on this dimension of talking to God, and I open with a selection of the stories about Jesus praying, not just his audacious promises, but just like there's so many little short stories of Jesus sneaking away to pray early in the morning or late at night or all night long or on a mountain or in the synagogue or whatever. It's just prayer is like the undercurrents, like yes. the through yeah. line to his biography. You know, you have this weird experience where the disciples look at Jesus and of course they have the famous thing, teach us to pray. And I just talk about how odd that is that Jesus did all of these extraordinary things, but we don't have a record, to my knowledge, of the disciples saying, teach us to heal the sick or mm -hmm. cast out demons or preach sermons or teach or stand up against political injustice or whatever, but we had them saying, teach us to pray. So I kind of just go deep into Luke 11, the disciples' prayer, teach us to pray, which is followed by what we call the Lord's Prayer or our Catholic brothers and sisters call the Our Father. And I kind of just kind of talk about two dimensions of the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus taught his disciples to pray, have a couple of theological truths from the Lord's Prayer that we're going to get into in a minute, and then how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. And this was really, this was kind of a new insight for me, that Jesus did not say, all right, you want to learn how to pray. You want to have this experience that I'm having. So just like start telling God whatever is on your mind. You know, the classical definition of prayer is lifting heart and mind to God, which is beautiful. He doesn't say to do that. It's not, you know, what some would call spontaneous prayer or free prayer. And 
in the church tradition I came up in, the kind of evangelical Protestant stream of the church, pretty much all prayer was that. It was just spontaneous. It was free. Like liturgy was a dirty word or whatever. That was for other types of Christians. But Jesus doesn't say just start by lifting. Not that's not wrong. But he actually gives the disciples a prayer to pray. Uh, a pre-made prayer, or the technical term for that is liturgy, though that draws up images of like a Anglican or Catholic or Presbyterian kind of church where you read through a formal prayer. I just mean a, a pre-written prayer, a prayer that somebody else has written or prayed or come up with that then you join your voice to to pray to God. And I give seven examples or so of pre-made prayers in the New Testament. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is one. The Psalms... Uh, scripture, just praying scripture, singing, you know, that there's that famous line from St. Augustine in the fourth century, he who sings prays twice. And <laughs> often people from kind of uh, lowbrow Protestant denominations are like, we don't do liturgy. And I'm like, no, no, every church does liturgy. It's the same thing. When you're singing, you're, you're praying a liturgy. Right. You're all praying together the same words to God, a uh, prayer or a song that somebody else wrote. Liturgy in the formal sense of, you know, the Book of Common Prayer or Liturgy of the Hours. Nowadays in the digital age, we have apps. So there's all these like wonderful apps like, of course, Lectio from from 24-7. There's Praise You Go from the Jesuits. There's that new one, uh, the Hallow app. Any of you use that? No. no. It's quite yeah. nice. I just, it's another <laughs> Jesuit app. They, they're, those Jesuits, they I'm are on their apps. Out. Let me tell you that. But it's quite good. And these are just ways where you're walking and you're praying and somebody else's words or thoughts are there to guide you into God. And I talk about some times when it's great to pray this way, uh, when you're one, when you're first learning to pray uh, and you don't know what to say to God, two, when you're traveling or away from your daily rituals of prayer. If you're in a, I do this a lot, like when I'm on an airplane from an early morning flight or you're in a hotel or you're exhausted or you're in a different time zone, you know. Three, when you're tired and you can't focus your mind very well, whether because you're traveling or you have two eight-month-old twins crawling on your lap and you didn't sleep the night before or you're at just a demanding season of caregiving or work or school. Four, when you're emotionally fragile or physically ill and you're just not your body, your soma is not there in the same way. When you long for a greater depth of articulation in your life with God, uh, when you are in a time of confusion and you don't know what to pray, when you're in what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, when you just have this experience of God as more of absence than presence, and you need other prayers to carry you. And that's kind of how I think about pre-made prayers. They carry us through, you know, what C.S. Lewis called the troughs, the, the valleys, the low points in our spiritual journey. So I end a little bit talking about the pragmatics of starting to pray, but mostly my point is that prayer is not a technique— it, there is technique to prayer, like, you know, when to pray mm -hmm. and how to yeah. pray and body posture, but that's for us, not for God. It's not like God is listening more if we're in the right position. It's more that mm -hmm. we have these distractible, jumpy minds and busy lives. And so that's helpful, but it is a relational skill. And so in one sense, you know, prayer isn't a practice at all or a spiritual discipline because all of the spiritual disciplines are a means to an end. And the end is prayer. Yeah, <laughs> the end yeah, is life yeah. with God. But there is still a, a practice dimension to it. So I, this is a clumsy analogy, but we use it in the practice. I think of like what date night is to my marriage. So I'm with, I do life with my wife. We live together. We sleep side by side. We're together, you know, not 24 seven, but I work from home and we both do, you know, so we're around each other a lot, but we still have a weekly 
date night, and that's a dedicated time where we clear away all distraction. We give ourselves to each other. It's a time of communication. It's a time of communion together. And the goal is that we would live in a deeper intimacy, not just for those two or three hours, but all week long. So there, are, there is a practice of prayer that is, it's kind of that, what that is to life with God, where you have these dedicated times, places, relational skills. There are things my wife and I do, like there are conversation, like patterns that we intentionally adopt that guide us into intimacy. And that's what, that's what the practice of prayer is to life with God. The end goal, of course, is just to deepen what the ancients called union with the Father and the Son and the Spirit all day, all week, all lifelong. Come on. And that's session one. The prayer practice is a four-week experience designed to be run in your church, small group, or community that combines teaching, conversation, and spiritual exercises to introduce you to this ancient discipline for life with God. If you come on the prayer practice, you will not just learn about prayer, you will learn how to pray. The end goal is to integrate prayer more richly into your rule of life so that you can arrange your life around God. The prayer practice is completely free thanks to the generosity of our friends in the circle, a group of people from all over the world who give monthly to Practicing the Way. Available now at practicingtheway.org. Jim, I love that you kind of touched on something when it came to the Lord's Prayer and how the disciples saw that there was something, there was a correlation between Jesus' expressive life of power and his prayer habits. And right there, a question just popped up. Jesus is talking to a culture of, of people who are taught to pray from a young age, right? They literally have it rote memory. Every single person kind of understands this. So when they say, teach us how to pray, was it simply the fact that they were like, hey, teach us how to pray so we can have power? Or they added this, this addendum right here, as John taught his disciples to pray. So are they asking for the praxis on how to pray? Or are they saying, hey, we need a creed or a new Shema. Like, why did they specifically ask or use John's relational dynamic with his disciples as the new framework for them to, to pray? Yeah, that's such a key phrase in our understanding of what the Lord's Prayer is, because there's a ton of historical evidence mm -hmm. that points to the fact that rabbis in the first century uh, typically adopted a prayer for their disciples the way that creeds are used today. Mm -hmm. So at a time before, or maybe filling the role of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed for the early church, there were prayers for disciples of John the Baptist, prayers for uh, other rabbis uh, like Gamaliel or, or whoever. And so it seems like Jesus' disciples were saying something like, hey, man, we're doing this, right? Like, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're your band of disciples? Yeah. Shouldn't we have a prayer? <laughs> so what that means is that when we read the Lord's Prayer, we are almost certainly not reading something that Jesus then rattled off spontaneously mm. in their response as a response to their question. Instead, particularly with the Lord's Prayer, we look at it and there's an incredible amount of similarities to uh, one of the Hebrew prayers that was prayed daily according to the ancient Hebrew prayer rhythm of that time called the Kaddish. Mm. I'm a little bit nervous about pronouncing Hebrew in the office of Tim Mackey. But <laughs> we are on the hallowed ground yeah, exactly. of, of Bible Project. That's yeah. right. Exactly. But it's, it's something, it sounds something like that. So 
what that means is that the Lord's Prayer was likely not entirely original to Jesus, but mm. he was taking a prayer prayed often in the temple wow. and then adapting it and making it much, 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 much more personal mm-hmm. for personal people in search of a personal God. Wow. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has a relationship to Yahweh but a relationship with Yahweh that goes by the title Abba, where he relates to God as Father. So he takes all of the orthodoxy of Hebrew spirituality and essentially makes it wildly personal Mm -hmm. for his disciples, and that's their creed, so to speak. Hi, my name is Ian. I'm 53, and I've had the privilege of following Jesus for over 40 years. It helps me to ask the Holy Spirit, my teacher, to open the Word to me and open me to the Word. I have found that structured prayers and prayer lists have significantly improved the quality and the duration of my prayers, and they help me when I do not know what to pray. Timely truth from the Word of God each morning has given me answers in life to so many prayers over the years. And I know that God's Word is an actual lamp that's helped guide my path. It is my personal experience that God is faithful. He always does what He says He'll do, even when I can't see a humanly possible way for Him to make it happen. So we thought it would be fitting for this first conversation to just walk through the Lord's Prayer line by line. First line is our Father who is in heaven. Gemma, why don't you why don't you take us away on this one? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I I used to think it was strange that Jesus didn't teach us to pray, "My Father." Uh, you know, in some way, to me, it seemed like it would have been more intimate and personal if if those words existed just between me and God. But now I deeply appreciate that the our pronoun, um, it connects me with the global church, past Mm. and present. It's not just me and God, me and my holy corner and you and yours over there. Like we're part of the same family of God. We're part of the body of Christ. And every time we pray this line, we get to remind ourselves that we are not alone. Mm -hmm. We are connected to brothers and sisters across time and space who have also sometimes and maybe often struggled with prayer. And these words also invite us into a familial relationship, a friendship and intimacy and communion with the living God that is initiated by God himself. Um, My grandfather used to always say, God is always previous. Mm. And I think it was this sense that he was saying that God always speaks first. He's always been the one to make the first move. Um, God is always lapping at the shores of people's lives. I I remember when I was about 20, I was sitting uh, sitting across from a wise friend and I said, you know, I, I just don't feel like I love God enough. How do I make myself love God more? And she smiled and said, Gemma, I think you've maybe got things the wrong way around. You see, you just need to get a revelation of how much God loves you. And that is what will change everything. And I think this line invites us to to bask in the beautiful mystery that the God of the universe would pursue us with his affection and desires to know us and be known by us. 
And I think these opening words of the prayer, our Father who is, also invites us to consider who God is to us. Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do you say I am? And I think these words invite us to name who who is God to me and who am I to God? Um, I believe it was A.W. Tozer said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think that we are invited to stay in this place of intimacy long enough until we can see and know God as he is and also let him draw us into a place of being at home in his love where we know in our gut who we are to him. And honestly, I think that everything else in the Lord's Prayer will naturally flow if we actually get that part right. Yeah, when I think of how much of spiritual formation in general, in particular prayer, it all begins with the healing of our false images of God, Mm. you know? And Mm. we imagine like the speaking to God as Father is so normal for us in the modern world that we don't realize no one had really ever, I mean, the scholarly consensus is basically no one had ever prayed to God as father before Jesus mm-hmm. of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. There was like the metaphor of God as the father of Israel or whatever, but we have literally not a single recorded instance of any Jewish person from around the time of Christ or thousands of years before praying to God as father. And so what Jesus is doing here is is revolutionary. Yeah, it makes sense that God or that Jesus would start with our image of God, because, of course, that's where the enemy started in warping the whole of creation. And obviously this is where the enemy starts with every last one of us, is to warp our image of God. And So Jesus begins prayer with restoring our image of God. That's good. Because if you don't trust and love God, you're never going to have any level of discipleship to him. That's right, yeah. So our Father who is in heaven, um, and then the next line of the prayer is, hallowed be your name. Yeah, to hallow means to set aside as holy or to make holy. It's not a word we use a lot uh, these days. So the question for me has always been, why does Jesus begin with hallowing? Like, why does God need me to remind him how great he is? Like, is he... Uh, an insecure megalomaniac that just needs to read his own press clippings from time to time? Is this some method of like well-intentioned manipulation where I'm buttering God up because I know I've got some asks coming (laughs) right after this? Uh, But in reality, I've come to the conclusion that it's the furthest thing from that. I think hallowing the name of God is more for me than it is for God. Because prior to hallowing his name, I've been in the world. Yeah. That's what's previous to every prayer I pray I've been <laughs> in the world. And if I do not begin my prayers by becoming more in touch with the reality of who he is, then my prayers are born from reaction to the circumstances around me yeah. rather than the reality of who God is. And, and what the, the entire biblical story is that essentially... God is the realist reality, right? Mm. He is reality. And so I need to become in touch with the identity of this God to remember who I'm talking to, that he's a father who loves to give good gifts, that he's compassionate and gracious and mighty and powerful, that he's a redeemer. I need to remember who I am to him, son or daughter, but also heir to the throne who shares an inheritance with Jesus. So hallowing God's name is this intentional move 
to get in touch with true reality. And the way that we hallow God's name varies greatly, but it just means something like just praising God for his character, just naming who he is so that I would remember who I'm talking to. Or it can be done through gratitude where you savor your yes. blessings, mm-hmm. the, the big ones and the small ones, like the little minuscule things and the massive great things. Or a lot of people pray the hallowing way by singing, like you were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, John yeah. Mark, that that uh, singing is praying twice, apparently, but but that if we uh, singing is so often praising the character of God in a way that joins like my head and my heart or my mind and my emotions together uh, as I hallow. Next line, your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Reward, why don't you take us into this one? I'd love to. I- I love how there's a subtle shift here. If we go back essentially to what you were talking about, um, JM, right? They witness his wonder works and they're like, from what Tyler was saying, they're like, hey, do we have a creed or whatever? But the truth of the matter is when the word kingdom right there, every kingdom has a mandate and it's got an assignment. Yeah. So I feel like in the, in the Lord's Prayer, this is kind of where it shifts to where he's like, hey, there is an assignment. There's a kingdom mandate that I want you guys to be a part of. But before I even jump into that, I want to speak to a, I know this podcast casts a powerful worldwide shadow, right? But at the same time, I know that primarily we're speaking to people that exist in either democratic or republic contexts, like America. America is not a democracy, right? It's a republic. And some people might not have the governmental framework for what kingdom looks like. So as someone who hails from Zimbabwe, that's a formerly colonized context. So at a bare minimum, when you talk about a kingdom, we know what it's like to to be raised up under the shadow of a particular kingdom where the king and his domain, right, where his wishes are superimposed on a particular people group. The culture of the king essentially then becomes the operational ethos for that particular community. So when I'm thinking about Jesus, he comes and he's talk. he could have talked about anything, right? But he comes and he's talking about his main assignment is to propagate his father's kingdom. And he brings utility to the dynamic. So I think what we have established is that the highest expression and the highest um, ideal when it comes to prayer is to enjoy God. But at the same time, there's still an assignment. And I think when he talks about your kingdom come. Yeah, it's not just to enjoy God. Exactly. It's to, (laughs) right, there's also an expressive assignment to all of creation to do that. So I think in this particular point is where there is that shift to where he's like, all right, the works that I do, right, the works that you guys have the potential and the capacity to do, the answered prayers on behalf of humanity, there is still a kingdom of darkness that is encroaching on the kingdom of light. And I deputize you guys, I fill you with my spirit and my light to go out and do the work of the kingdom. And when he says that the kingdom, right, is essentially God's constitution superimposed on earth's jurisdiction and from there empowers us to go forth. And I feel like in this part of it, this way he reminds us that I'm your father, you've enjoyed me, but we still got work to do. I mean, the interesting thing about your biography, their reward is, you know, when Jesus is praying, your kingdom come, mm-hmm. Israel already had a king and was a part of a kingdom. Yeah. The king's name was Caesar mm-hmm. and the kingdom was the Roman Empire mm-hmm. and they were an oppressed, colonized people. Precisely. And so here is an indigenous 
spiritual leader yeah. praying for God's kingdom to yeah. come, which is a yeah. kingdom of liberation, uh-huh. you know, from 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 everything. I mean, what an interesting perspective. And if you think about it too, right, uh, when if we're to like completely decontextualize ourselves and look objectively at this kingdom, uh, the two things that it runs on, right, the foundation of this kingdom is righteousness and justice. So whatever he's coming and speaking to is very antithetical to the reality that they are used to on the outside. So he comes and he preaches another king who is not Caesar and is specifically a kingdom. And so when he says that, I think he really ties into not just for the truth of their cultural context, but knowing that conquest was going to be the way of the world, like literally up until the British Empire that colonized us, only 27 countries were not colonized, right? It was the empire that the sun never set on because at any time of the day, there was the sun was up right. on a British colony of some sort. And so that aspect of it, a vast, ever-increasing kingdom, he knew that at every aspect and iteration of people's lives, there would be a direct framework to what that looks like. That really, I mean, it's so clear from that one line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus presupposes that the kingdom of God has not come, <laughs> at least mm-hmm. not in full, and that the will of God is not being done, yeah. at least in full. Mm-hmm. And so this form of prayer, your kingdom come, is a form not of resignation, but of participation. Oh, that's good. And, you know, Rich Viotis, when we sat down with him to interview him on prayer, had some really interesting thoughts along that line. I think about what Jesus tells us to pray in, in the Lord's Prayer, when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, that is often seen through the lens of resignation. Lord, there's so many problems in the world. Please let your kingdom come. Let your will be done because there's nothing we can do about it. And I, I don't think Jesus is calling us to pray in that way. I think it's not language of resignation, but language of participation. And it's not us saying, Lord, there's nothing we can do so fix the world. I think it's more, Lord, there's so much we can do, but only in your power. And frame, reframing it that way makes all the difference in the world. And so what pray, prayer is, God wants to get something done in me and through me. I mean, this is Dallas Willard's definition of grace, isn't it? Of God doing in me and for me and through me what I can do for myself. And how do I now live my life in that way where I see prayer as a means for God to get something done in the world as opposed to thoughts and prayers. And so I, I think actually the cultural resistance that people have to that phrase is actually um, a well-needed word of rebuke to the church because the church has often seen prayer in disembodied, non-participatory ways. God, you got to do something about it. And God's saying, what are you talking about? I, 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 this is why I've given you the Holy Spirit, you know, so that you can respond in my name and in my authority and in my power to these problems here. Uh, and so I think much of it is how, we ref- how do we reframe that prayer in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not resignation, that's participation. And ultimately knowing that God is the one who's going to make this happen here, but I have a part to play in the meantime. Man, that was very good. So helpful. Next line, give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, so this is petition. We're asking God um, for 
our needs. It's inviting God into the beauty and brokenness of our ordinary everyday lives. And, and I also think through these words, we're acknowledging that we are finite and limited. We need God's intervention. We need God's provision. And we've already touched on this a bit, but the reality is that asking for what we need involves trust. You know, if we don't trust, we we don't ask. Mm-hmm. And God invites us to become like little children and to make our request to him and to be doggedly persistent in our asking. I, um, I've been through seasons when I have asked God for everything, you know, a mixer, a microwave, whatever my practical needs were. You know, I couldn't afford to buy them. And so I prayed and lo and behold, God provided them. And it was a season of real um, childlike wonder and awe and delight. But it would also be remiss if I didn't say that there is great mystery here in this part of the prayer, because I'm sure all of us can easily think of times when we've asked and asked and we haven't received. Um, At the same time that God was prompting someone in prayer to buy me a KitchenAid and giving me a free microwave in a parking lot at midnight, he was not answering the prayer that mattered most to me, the prayer that I was praying every day that I desperately wanted to have a baby. Um, And there have been long seasons where, if I'm honest, I just stopped asking God for anything because Mm. I didn't trust him. Mm. I'd been disappointed. And to avoid further pain of disappointment, I just stopped asking for my needs. And when I think of this line in the prayer, I also think of this little boy, this three-year-old that I, um, I sometimes looked after. And he'd been through quite a lot of trauma. And I started noting that he, noticing that he was um, hiding food because he, he couldn't trust that the next time he'd feel hungry, that there would be food available for him. And the children of Israel did something similar with the manna mm-hmm. God provided in the wilderness. They, they hoarded it ultimately because they didn't trust that God would provide for their needs on a daily basis. But the manna you know, only stayed good for the day it was collected. And when they tried mm. to hoard it, it spoiled. Wow. And we were invited um, to surrender, to trust trust that our good father knows what we need and will provide for those needs and also sustain us in the waiting and the disappointment and the mystery. Um, And I think here we're not only praying for material things. We're asking that God would sustain us by his word and by his spirit. We cannot live by bread alone. We need every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need his word to awaken us and sustain us. And so on a daily basis, we are invited to ask that Jesus, the bread of life, would enliven us, Mm -hmm. um, would sustain us with his very life within us. And, And I think when we do that, we're also acknowledging that that really what we're doing is we're putting our hope and our trust in a person, not in in things working out the way we right. think they they should go. Mm-hmm. Um, our trust is in is in Christ, in the bread of life. Practicing the Way is a crowd-funded nonprofit made possible by the Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I am Bartek from Poland and I am part of this community. To join myself and others in the circle or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org slash give.
Yeah, we, we've also been circling around, uh, you know, the disappointment that we encounter in prayer uh, inevitably uh, a few times now. And I think it's worth noting and naming that prayer is relationship mm-hmm. or, or you're just you're in the shallow end of the relationship because you haven't hit a disappointment yet that you right. had to work through, which is fine. Don't like rush to get to disappointment, <laughs> but just know that disappointment is going to be painful it's going to be dark. It's going to require some hard work. And there can be hard-won intimacy in the end yes. if you stay in the conversation with Jesus through the disappointment. Well, you know, what's the Rollheiser line? Like, there's there's no right way to pray. There's no wrong way to pray. You can't be good at it or bad at it. You just, like, the one rule is just keep showing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, just yeah. don't stop. Just keep, and that's the Jesus thing. Keep asking, mm-hmm. keep seeking, keep knocking. And and we'll talk about unanswered prayer and that phenomenon in a future episode. But for now, Gemma, I just keep thinking of what you said earlier, that Scripture is way more honest about this phenomenon than we are. Mm-hmm. You know, And there's, a, there's an odd thing, at least in the kind of broad stream of Western Protestantism that I've been swimming in my whole life, where pastors and spiritual leaders tend to be incredibly unrealistic and dishonest about the reality of spiritual life. And then that creates this, you know, when there's a pride position, there's a shame position. So it creates the shadow that I think a lot of people are living through. And, you know, one of the reasons behind deconstructionism, I think, is that. And so, like, the biblical writers just don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From mm-hmm. David to Paul, like, they're just wildly full of hope yeah. and incredibly honest about when they feel from their vantage point, their hopes have been dashed, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus is welcoming us into that vulnerable place, you know? Hence the next line, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I'm uh, leading uh, an initiative where our church is gathering in groups and praying through the Lord's Prayer right now. And I've noticed this theme in the group that I gather with that, the two lines previous to this, like kingdom come, there's just prayers flowing against systemic injustice <laughs> and, and in our things. cities yes. and yeah, all the ways that we want to see the kingdom come, the daily bread and everyone's voicing their needs for the day. And then it's the the line uh, about confession and <laughs> all of a sudden it's like crickets and you just feel a heaviness come over. Yeah. And uh, we tend to relate to confession with a kind of heaviness like that, like it's a downer. And in some ways it is. I mean, it is the acknowledgement that there's this ever-present gap within me between who I am and who I really intend to be and want to be. But to confess is not to wallow in shame and despair. It's to invite Jesus to wash over my failure by his, his grace. It's good news. And a lie that I believe plagues the modern church is that spiritual maturity means that as I grow up in Christ, I need to confess less because I've got less to confess. Hmm. Uh, but the, the opposite, huh? Right. I mean, the life, death, and resurrection means that confession isn't a white flag. It's a victory flag. Confession is the means to my redemption. And confession is even the way that we reverse the curse uh, that we see in Genesis. In Genesis 3, the reaction to sin is hiding. It is hiding from God in the brush Mm -hmm. and hiding from one another by dressing up in fig leaves. Confession is the way we've been given this side of the cross and resurrection uh, where we undress ourselves and we return to the naked and unashamed state Mm -hmm. that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. 
It, it is to uh, to remove all the places that I would want to hide so that God's healing can get into every last part of me. So confession, I think of it kind of like that, like a refusal to hide. Because in the biblical story that we've got, we run to confession and we should fear keeping up appearances. Mm, right. uh, it's mm. keeping up appearances yeah. that is giving into the curse. And so the greatest example of this has to be David. Um, you know, David obviously gives us more prayers than I think anyone else in the scripture through the Psalms. And uh, I've often asked myself this question, what made David a man after God's own heart? Hmm. Yeah, because you read his biography and he did some things that are pretty not God's heart. Exactly. And those are well documented. Uh, So then what made David's heart like God's heart? I think it's only this, that we have his prayer journals, the Psalms, wedged right into the middle of our Bibles, and they reveal that whenever he found himself tempted to hide, he ran out of the brush to the Father. David confessed and confessed often. And and I think here in this line as well, we, we aren't just confessing our own sin, but we are also committing to extend forgiveness to those yeah. who have hurt us. Forgive like, us and those who have sinned against us. Right. Um, Henry Nouwen said that we have to forgive others for not being God. <laughs> in other words, like no one can love us with the perfect, pure, unconditional mm. divine love well other than God. Uh, and so we are continually needing to forgive others for feeling to love us like this and and probably even forgiving ourselves for not being able to love others like that. I think that line of the prayer also recognizes our shared humanity. You know, we're all fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image, and yet we're also broken and flawed. We all need forgiveness, and we also all need to extend forgiveness. And that actually our healing and wholeness is ultimately tied up in both being forgiven and offering forgiveness because unforgiveness keeps us trapped right in the hurt and therefore this part of the prayer invites us to name the wrongs that we have committed and also to name the wrongs that have been inflicted upon us just as we receive grace and not retaliation we choose to extend grace instead of retaliation yeah that was one of the things Gemma that was really surprising to me when I first started learning about formation and specifically about what some would call inner healing or the healing of memories or just kind of wholeness coming to the soul was just how integral forgiveness is. Like whenever I would talk to kind of sages who do that kind of work, we sit with people and do that work, they would talk a ton about people receiving the love of God. Uh, You know, the first part, like forgive us our sins and kind of, and then they would talk a ton about, the need to forgive those that have Mm -hmm. sinned against us and how when we hold to an unforgiveness or whatever you want to call that, a bitterness or a recrimination, it's like we're slowly erecting this giant brick wall between us and the Trinity, you know, because, Mm. because I think the Trinity is so by nature, you know, generous, like for the father gave the son, the son gave his life and to forgive is to give. It's to Mm -hmm. give this deep part of yourself away. Yeah the need to be of right for righteousness and justice, which is at the heart of God's kingdom, you know? So it's just amazing. This is not like a side thing, like, oh, yeah, we should forgive people when we pray. This is like we'll make or break not just your prayer life, but your entire life with God. Mm -hmm. Kia ora. My name is Dan, and I am a pastor in Auckland, New Zealand. And I am a husband and a father to two wonderful children under five. 
what practices make up my daily prayer rhythm? Um, I have found uh, absolute life in prayer thanks to several years of praying through the Psalms. Um, I got given this little prayer book, uh, How to Pray Through the Psalms by Eugene Peterson, and that book became um, dog-eared and well-used for me for one year, and I've never looked back. That has been hugely life-giving to me. And the other way that I like to pray daily is by using the Lord's Prayer. Uh, as Jesus taught us to pray, that's my framework, and I use it as a way to pray for about 10 minutes by taking each piece and using it as a framework to kind of leap into some other spaces of prayer, um, adoration, into intercession, into forgiveness, and so on and so on. So those are the ways that I pray. Yeah, and I think it should be named that there are certain aspects of forgiving others or receiving forgiveness from God that are more or less like a one-time thing. It's like something comes to mind, oh God, I, I see that now within myself. Will you please forgive me and I receive his grace. And there's other moments in this movement of the prayer where you might find yourself praying the same thing yes. for weeks or months or mm-hmm. even years because you're going through a process of, God, again this morning, I feel shame where I know your grace is more powerful. So or I, I feel ask, anger or, and bitterness. Exactly, mm-hmm. This relationship or this, I'm continuing to define this other person by something less than your grace. And so until that is the standard by which I'm defining them, I will hold them in your presence and mm-hmm. ask that your forgiveness for them would flow through me to them. Today. I wonder if that's why Jesus put, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us in his central prayer, which mm-hmm. the early Christians, you know, prayed three times a day, mm-hmm. seven days a week. Because in my experience, unless if it's a very minor wound, that's how forgiveness works. You mm-hmm. just have to There's this moment when you begin to forgive, and then it's just over and over and over. It's the water on the stone Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Just forgive and forgive, and we just and I think in prayer, particular if you know you're talking about quiet prayer when you're alone, which is not all prayer, but um, that stuff comes up there. Mm -hmm. So I'll often like sit down to pray, and ten minutes go by, and I realize I've just sat there being mad at so and so for (laughs) how they hurt me. I'm like, wait a minute. This is not (laughs) prayer. This is like revenge in God's general direction, you know? (laughs) And so Jesus is just bringing us back here to to the role of forgiveness. Last line is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, you know, I think this is the line that we tend to have the hardest time finding our own words for or participating within. And that's because, at least in the modern West— We find it a whole lot easier these days to believe in a God of love than an intelligent being of evil. Or to put it into biblical language, we find it easier to believe in Jesus than Satan. Uh, There's this temptation that exists today to just import Jesus into a humanistic worldview where everything's got a psychological, sociological, and anthropological solution, Mm -hmm. where everything wrong with the world could then just be fixed and and made right by right politics or a pill or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but a world without personified evil, though, something like Satan, in the end is equally as problematic as a world without personified love through it's Jesus good, if the ultimate aim is human flourishing. Because at some point, if that's your view, you're going to have to confront a God who's less than all-powerful and completely loving, or you're going to have to make people the enemy, yes, not mm-hmm. the evil one. You end up demonizing people or whole 
ethnic groups or That's political right. tribes right. or, yeah. Exactly. And so, John Mark, this whole idea is right at the center of your book, Live No Lies. So I would love if maybe you'd talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I like, you know, you're always trying to write yourself into a better life. And so when you live in a city like Portland, <laughs> you know, where like the air you breathe is agnosticism at best, atheism, you know, if not. And the idea of personified evil, even to a lot of Christians, sounds nuts. But yet I just find the secular theories of evil incredibly insufficient to explain the data of the human experience. You know, whether it's just we need more education or we need the right politics or we need the I'm over the like if we just hack politics, we're gonna make utopia. And I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for politics. I'm all for, you know, let's let's make the world a better place and more just. I'm very much for that. But I'm definitely not like if we get the right person there we're going to create utopia apart from God. I'm pretty sure that we've had a couple thousand years and I'm just I'm not betting on that on that game, you know. <laughs> yeah. Not that it doesn't matter, not that it's not important, not that we can't move things in the right direction, but I don't think you can make sense of the level of evil in the world, especially if I step outside of my like very sheltered kind of middle-class Western life story, mm-hmm. and you begin to travel and see how much of the world is, or you begin to just read history and much of even this part of the world was, and or, or, or other people's experience who don't look like me or have my status or position in society, and they're living through a very different America than I'm living through. Mm-hmm. And you just began to realize, man, evil is real, and it's like there's this dark anim- animating energy That's behind right. it. That's right. That I, I just I actually find to be a more sophisticated, more intelligent, and more reality based approach to evil. And again, this is where prayer comes in. And you know, Karl Barth had that beautiful line to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. (laughs) And there's something beautiful about that, you know, and Jesus is clearly, I mean, I think is the most intelligent human being to ever live. And you cannot read the teachings of Jesus and walk away thinking that evil is just a vague sociological force. Mm -hmm. Like Jesus believes in personified evil and he's literally teaching his disciples every single time they pray to pray against this and to pray for deliverance. Mm -hmm. And he must be assuming that we need deliverance from evil and from the evil one. Reward, what about you coming from a non-Western context? You know, one of the things that's been helpful for me is to realize that, you know, globally and for sure historically, people that don't believe in personified evil are like a tiny little slice of the pie. (laughs) Yeah, You know, most of the world would look at us and think we're out of our mind to even struggle to believe in this, you know? That's right. I mean, what, what, is that a different perspective for you? Oh, absolutely. I still remember this when I first came to the U.S. in the seminary. I I still remember one time asking my professor, I was like, why are we leaving out all the parts about Jesus casting out demons and uh, the devil and everything? We have all these incredible sermons, but there's this part that we really ignore, right? And, uh, and, and I think it, it speaks to, um, to something which I think is sociological in, in a sense. But, but before I go in there, I just want to say, man, the, the most incredibly freeing uh, on my path to spiritual formation revelation was the simple fact that my sociology was sacred, right? That you can look back at the way specific societies were set up in their value systems and glean things in there that would help me in my my spiritual formation. So, for example, uh, the in, in Ghana, in West Africa, the Akan people, they have this, it's almost like it's a social philosophy called Sankofa, and it basically means 
to go back and get wisdom. Sankofa, go back and get wisdom. And their whole thing is like, hey, communally, when you look at your sociology, you can gain wisdom to kind of help you move forward. I, I come from the Bantu aspect of that, and we have something in Ubuntu, right? Bantu is a tribe. Yeah, it's, so basically, it's Bantu is about 600 right, ethnic races represented, hmm. all of sub-Saharan Africa. Right. That whole, yeah, the, those whole people are called the Bantu people. But they have a social philosophy, and it speaks to a lot of shared, shared burdens, right? And when you read the Bible from a Bantu perspective, you see that evil is exactly what it is. It is an affront on communities. and On the affront, shared burdens on of the, the people. Shared, so, for example, on that, uh, grief, right, is a communal burden within the Ubuntu context. So if me and you are beefing, John Mark, and I lose something that's near and dear to me, right? Everything else about our personal issues is on moratorium until, so you come, you comfort me, you give me everything I need. In the exact same way, joy is the same way. Any emotion that is expressive beyond a human's, a single human's capacity to carry becomes, right, a communal burden. Hmm. And what I've noticed about a lot of the world, the majority context world, is the simple fact that they understand that evil is encroaching on all that is good. I'm, I'm kind of like a nerd. You guys know in, in Lord of the Rings when the hobbits are tempted to be like, let's just stay in the Shire. Everything is good and beautiful here. And they're we like, li- no. We literally <laughs> just watched this a few days ago. <laughs> exactly. They're like, there will be no Shire. So for me, I think when we look past the fact that America specifically is a younger civilization and utility is still one of those things that we do. We can understand why this concept of personified evil has been a welcome distraction as we empire build. Hmm. But for the most part, there's an evil one. He has an evil agenda and he's coming at us, encroaching on us communally. And as a community, we yeah, ask the, the Lord. Our Father, deliver, our, deliver us from evil. Absolutely, yeah. Wow. So, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So as we're wrapping up, for those of you that want to go deeper into the Lord's Prayer, for week one of the prayer practice, the reach exercise is kind of a guided prayer through the Lord's Prayer where you kind of pray through it thematically that I find really helpful. I do it a lot in my morning kind of time of prayer, and that's available for you at practicingtheway.org if it's helpful at all. But to end for our time together, Gemma, why don't you land the plane? Well, I think about what Ronald Rollheiser wrote, that prayer like love is easy only in its beginnings and in maturity Mm. and in between it is hard and it Mm. requires great fidelity so if you are listening and you're struggling to pray you are not alone prayer isn't a formula it is a relationship and like all relationships there will be moments of great joy and delight and togetherness and there will be moments of struggle and confusion And I think our our life of prayer requires 
learning and humility. It will evolve and change depending on your season of life and wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith. You will not always want to pray or feel anything tangible in prayer. Mm. And all of that is normal. And so I would just want to close by saying, start with whatever is most honest. Um, I love um, Dr. Larry Crabb says that God meets us where we are, not where we pretend to be or wish we were. Mm -hmm. We can't truly grow spiritually if we're pretending or hiding. So I think the invitation in prayer is to come out of hiding, to be our true and most honest selves in God's presence, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am convinced that God's favorite of all of the prayers that I pray are not the ones that are polite uh, and fully formed, but the ones that are raw and honest, where I articulate in God's presence exactly what I'm thinking and feeling. And sometimes that sounds a lot like gratitude and adoration, and other times it sounds more like grief or complaint. Um, sometimes the most honest prayer is our silence. But let's be honest and start there. Oh, 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 oh